We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Freedom Between the Lines. If you would, please join me as we welcome to the clubhouse the author, Gregory Rubano. By the way, for anyone listening to the podcast, if you either hear snoring or anything... Uh, it's not correct. <laughs> we do have a co-host tonight. His name is Sinatra. The rest is an inside joke. Uh, <laughs> just very quickly, for those of you who may not know, uh, an English teacher and curriculum development specialist for over 30 years, Greg Rubano currently develops anti-bullying and intolerance programs. And thank you very much for coming to the clubhouse, Greg. Uh, it's really, I, I told my wife is currently uh, overseas, which is why Sinatra is with us tonight here uh, as the co-host. And uh, I was trying to tell her as I was reading this, preparing, that I really felt ashamed. Uh, it's really beautiful, but I felt ashamed that, and I love history, and I did not really know the depths, I'm not talking about Charles Bender, yeah. just the depths of what happened, what the U.S. government did to the Native American Indians. Right. And so, just to get us going, before we get, get into the rest of it, uh, first, where, where does the title come from, Freedom Between the Lines? It's such a beautiful title. I think it, it comes from the sense that as many who have studied Native Americans playing because of their experience with the boarding schools, and in their semi-pro and pro leagues as well, that this was a unique opportunity for them to reformulate their warrior tradition, meaning they who over the periods of time had been taken over by the mentality of the federal government, the restrictions of the federal government, the loss of the land, the loss of the resources. This seemed to be a time where they could finally call forth those reformulated warrior traditions with, you know, the whites beating the whites being the name of the game. So as a result, it finally was freedom to once again engage against that enemy. They've had other enemies in the past. It wasn't particularly the white enemy at this moment. But they had that enemy to look at. And they also for a, did not have to worry about the unfair consequences. You know, victories, as everybody here knows, came at great cost when those victories were off the field. Uh, they came not only in bloodshed, anyone can go through the, the Trail of Tears all the way to uh, the Wounded Knee Massacre and, of course, in between what happened um, at the Battle of Little Bighorn. But here was that freedom to say, I can win. Okay? I need not have to worry about the consequences and I can at the same time have a cultural resistance built in by that win. It's in effect saying back to others that I have that and I have that right to claim it. And that's freedom as far as I'm concerned. You know. And I, maybe I, I think a good place to start before we get to Charles Bender and, and baseball, and maybe because I think a lot of people don't really know 
and this is a little unfair because I'm asking you to do this in a very uh, mm. couple of minutes. Yeah. If you could, though, just do a little real brief summary of what really happened with the U.S. government yeah. and uh, as much as you can, just a, a very kind of cliff note. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, the one who's given the credit, is, so to speak, is Richard Henry Pratt. Uh, his school, the Carlisle Industrial School, became the model. Okay? And there were others, you know, that were West. They, you know, they were also there in 25 different federal boarding school programs. He had an early relationship with Afro-Americans and the Bisons. That was one of his troops. He started to develop this natural sympathy and this natural understanding of the dispossessed. So the question early on became, how do I get them, you know, to not become just victimized? He then, in around the 1870s, very early 1870s, he became the leader of an Apache group that were all prisoners of war. First thing he did was to take their shackles off. First thing he did was to allow them to self-monitor, allow them into town, was surprised that many of them already spoke English. Okay, So at one point, you say, we must be talking about a reformer with great philanthropic visionary instincts that would only be the best for Native Americans. By the time it was all done, in 2002, now this means the entire program, the comment made by the assistant of the Indian Affairs was it was a terrible the program was a terrible act aimed at children that brutalized them emotionally physically and spiritually and diminished and infested Indian people thereafter so what happened in between is the question what happened with it seems like a good vision what went wrong with it he applied the military model as much as he could because that's the only one he knew. Okay. He happened to stumble upon what was a military complex, a civil war complex, where the Hessians were kept. He decided the only way to deal with these Native Americans was to find a way to assimilate them. And the only way you assimilate them is to destroy their culture. Okay. So the phrase drive the Indian out of them. Okay. He made that comment. It needs to be thought of a, in a little more of a charitable way. It didn't mean, you know, the only good Indian is a dead Indian, but it means that the culture must be driven out of them. Uh, Carlisle, 1918, okay, closes. 1916, the commencement speaker of Carlisle is saying, if you want to be, he's talking to the Native Americans in front of him, if you want to be a model U.S. citizen, you must be industrious, cultured, and civilized. You must drive the Indian out of you. Think of the implication, okay? You're lazy, okay? You have no culture of any real worth or value, that can stand on its own basis. And civilization is what we, in the Anglo-Saxon world, the world of manifest destiny, where we are a God-given country that marches forth 
and we have the values bought from ethics of hard work. Okay? If you want to be an American citizen, you have to have all those. It's 1960. It wasn't until 19, I think, 24 where Native Americans actually got the right to, to be American citizens. So what they ended up doing, which was so horrific, was you came in, you had your hair cut. To some tribes, that was particularly insensitive. The Lakota, who felt that the spirits of the dead were in their hair, okay, and, the, and the history of the people, frequently cases of crying as they were being cut. Okay. Their possessions were taken from them. Sometimes in spectacles, bonfires, while they watched. So they were basically frisked as they came in to make sure everything was thrown and nobody was hiding what they were doing, what belonged not to them. They were forbidden to play, to play the games of youth. They were forbidden to play uh, the, or to involve themselves in the songs. Okay. So everything from their childhood was to be thrown away as well. They were not allowed to use their own language. The Apaches could not speak Apache. They could not socialize with members of their own tribe. There could be some small intertribal communications, but they could not be allowed to speak to themselves. So the question was obviously, you better be prepared to have what is in you that defines you as Indian, that is all of your cultural memory bank wiped out. Only then can we assimilate them. Can we bring them in? Now, assimilation, and tell me when I'm, I'm just trying to lay the foundation. No, no, perfect. Part of the assimilation process was the outing system, where they were put with families in the area. Okay. Charles Bender, who we speak about a lot in the book, uh, was very happy with his outing experience. He talked about the wonderful experience with the Quaker families. That seemed to be, uh, it was not the common response. Oftentimes, what happened was they were used as, as basically slave labor. There are indications they were used sexually as well. And many of them ran. Okay? The ones who, and wouldn't you run? Okay? If you were a baseball player and you had great talent, like one player named Leroy, Louis Leroy, from Carlisle. Very good. Spent 18 years in professional ball. Four or five with pros, but then the others are part of that professional umbrella. He was great at it, but he was a smart man. $25 a summer to work in the outing program, $75 a month or more to play with the Harrisburg team down the line, or the chance to become rich making the bigs, okay? A or B, what do I do? Okay. I, I was laughing, I was thinking of, you know, in the college game, you know, first those, those guys who were first year out, you know, like, well, they hold the talent in the world, they should be allowed to follow whatever talent they have, right? Isn't that what it's all about? This is America, okay? Even Duke has to realize, first time, and they want to sign a contract, they're gone. These guys were as smart and said, I'm following the bright light. Why can't I follow the bright light? Because you're one of ours. You belong to us. You're part of our mission. And as a result, you cannot leave us. So what they did to Leroy, okay, twice he ran away. The second time, Pratt himself ran after him, 
found him, he was posing as a an Italian. <laughs> Having some dark skin, I can see how that might have might have worked. Okay, found him quickly, put him into the Hessian jail guard. Okay, so he's maybe nineteen. Okay. He spent a month and a half looking through the bars at all the other kids playing baseball. And of course, once he got out, he took out all for good. Of the 11 to 12,000 students who came through Carlisle, and I am selecting just Carlisle, there are others, but the book focuses on Carlisle. Um, Of the 11 to 12,000, 1,500 of the kids ran away. That's the latest approximation. Another probably, I'd say, a thousand of them uh, became sick. Various degrees, some sent back home, some died right on the cemetery. Okay, there's a, it was one of the few early places that had a, a private cemetery for its kids. There were like 16 Apaches that died in the first movement over because they recruited from everywhere. They recruited from the west, you know, they recruited from the south, they had the quote blanket Indians from the West, but they also had the ones right around the corner. At one point, they had 75 different tribes all on the same uh, locale. That's a lot. <coughs> Talk about community or lack of, and that's it. So uh, maybe the death, the, the graduation rate, I'll be honest, I found various figures. I'm not really sure which one's right. It's going to take another book to find out the right answer. Uh, but I would say it, it's easy to say it was less than 10%. Okay. So the great experiment produced those events. And I think that's enough for the, for the background. I have an explanation behind it, but that might be a later question. Okay. Right. And we're going to uh, get to right. our audience for questions, right. too. So, yeah. uh, no, that's a great, that's a great background. Which leads us into, from on the baseball side, yeah. Charles Bender. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you could just fill us in a little bit about Charles Bender. And I also have a question, yeah. uh, because my and I went out of my way not to do this in the email newsletter <laughs> that was sent out, because I always knew him as Chief Bender. And yeah. when I was about eight, we were talking about this before, I was about eight or nine years yeah. old, my dad got me a book, a Hall of Famers, and... It was like a little children's Mid, book. Mid-50s or something. Yes, yeah, yeah. so he made it. But yeah, this, well, this was, uh, yeah, this would have been the late 60s that I was reading the book. And, right. Yeah. Uh, every page, you know, Babe Ruth, Ty Cobb, mm-hmm. uh, Chief Bender. So I, I knew of Chief Bender. And then I went to look at his Hall of Fame plaque just yesterday yeah. online. Right. And it says Charles Albert Bender, Chief. Chief. Is that derogatory or it's not derogatory? It's still derogatory. It is derogatory. Um, most of the Native Americans who talk about it, they try to approximate as being related to being called boy, and, you know, from the Afro-American world, saying it was a way to show we still have ownership over you. We've A, defeated you, and in some kind of colonial way of thinking, you are still under our subjection. Now, Bender in the beginning didn't sign chief, okay? Later on, as he figured out that the best thing to do is just try to make as many friends within this Anglo-Saxon world and try to find where he could find a place to live, uh, 
He had many friends. He bowled with people. He was a mason. You know, he was like one of us. You know, he took advantage of many of the Anglo opportunities as possible. Uh, but, and in fact, even when he died, okay, right before his death, uh, he said to one of his best friends, "Here are my, here are my scalps, and here's my tomahawk. I probably won't be seeing you anymore." So. Even in death, he was playing that very fine line between, between I am a good friend, but I'm also a Native American, and I've been used. Okay? And that's really important to remember, even as I want you to remember me as a friend. So it was going on in that kind of way. Um, I got interested in it because of the simplest thing. Probably like most of us. When you're writing a book, you know, it starts out for me. I don't know how you guys, when you're writing, you know. I'm reading other people's books. I see a picture, and all of a sudden I go, interesting picture. And, oh, wow, I wonder about that. Okay. So I saw this picture of the 1913 World Series. Okay. We had Myers. You know, this was probably the greatest collection of Native American ball players on center stage, you know, in 1913. Okay. So you had Jim Thorpe playing for the Giants. You had, you had Myers, Chief Myers... He especially was the most militant of the Native Americans. Uh, would prefer to have been called Jack and John Torres than Chief Myers. Okay, and then of course you had Bender. Uh, and I, I watched, and I said, "Wow, that must have been a great World Series." Now, who was managing? Oh yeah, of course, it was for the Giants guys. McGraw. Right, McGraw. Now, if anyone's been known as a baiter of umpires and other fans, it's McGraw. Okay, so what, so I remember the story that, that I had heard, because I was reading the book at the same time, and it was McGraw talking, and an umpire said, I hate that man. It's like having, it's like having someone deliver a serum that's got, that's got a pox in it. Got to get away from me. Then, yeah, the ump's name was Sheridan. Sheridan admitted that on four times, this is how much he was hated, McGraw, on four times, he was hit by a pitched ball and not given first base. <laughs> so there was going to be a little payback for what he was doing. But McGraw continued to be McGraw. Okay? Um, he ran against Myers once in a race around the, around the infield. And Myers is doing this and doing, I mean, McGraw, trying to get the best shot. But they say uh, Myers is the one who won the race. They both are very slow because he put on that final burst of of uh, Native American lust and drove past and left him in the back. Okay. But the, but the really interesting thing is the one man that frustrated him most was Chief Bender. In the, 19, in the 1913 World Series, and again, read about that series. It's a wonderful series. But here's Bender who's always being provoked by the calls. Always go back to the reservation you know, we're going to scalp you tonight. You name them all. I don't want to give them too much dignity by giving them all out. But I think, unfortunately, you could add them. And that's how much they're still part of the mentality of the country. Okay. But Bender, if you don't mind, since there's no TV. Right? Yeah. Okay. Bender got up. And he had this smile. And I tried again and again and again to have him talk about what the smile meant. I could ne he never actually wrote about it. Writers wrote about it all the time, okay? But he didn't. So he comes in, okay, walks up to where these bench jockeys are doing their job and such, puts on the big smile like this. And 
cups to hear like this. Okay. I can't hear you. Okay. And they laughed, you know, they got louder and louder. Then went back and proceeded to pitch a shutout. Okay. So that in all of the games that he pitched in the World Series, he pitched nine, he pitched ten. Nine were complete game victories. Reason why he became known as the money pitcher, you know, by so many people. But I thought about the smile, and I said, it must have been so stoical, you know? I wonder what it looked like. How do you smile, you know, without looking like you got buck tooth here? Or how do you smile without making it look like pure sarcasm? How do you create a smile that goes right to the heart of people, aggravates them so much that they'd love to get on that field and just throttle you, okay? One man named Bobby Wallace was hit by a... <laughs> This does come around to answer that one. I'm sorry. <laughs> I love telling stories. I suppose. So one man named Bobby Wallace comes up, and they have a collision at home plate. And Bender goes down, and Wallace goes down. And then the next pitch, next time the Wallace is up, Bender hits him straight in the back. Okay. So, of course, Wallace goes charging to the mound. And later on he says, what he said, it wasn't that he hit me. It was that damn smile. <laughs> and then the papers would say, that's why the Native Americans could not win no matter what. Okay? With great control and composure, using that smile, representative of the cunning of his people, okay, he won. So he could not win. And then if he won, then he was one of those good engines, which almost meant he was a quality young man and he didn't, and he didn't drink. He wasn't involved in those lurid types of activities that Indians did. So when I'm said and done, I'm thinking, boy, he must have been one strong character. And boy, in many ways, I have him up in my heart. And then I'm thinking, but you're guilty. You're assuming that there was a stoic look in that smile. How do you know that? You're reading the press. The press says those Indians are as hard as granite. Remember the pictures we all have of them, right? They're looking up like this, the, the noble savage. Nothing will bother them. They're beyond human almost. They're in another stage of self-control. Okay? And I said, you're, you're, you're writing this book and you're, and you're thinking about this and you're guilty of the same stereotype. Until after his, his bad moments with, with uh, Connie Mack, he said, I know Connie called me the coolest picture he's ever had. And the newspapers... Connie picked it up, uh, called him the money pitcher, okay. But he said, you know, he didn't know what was ripping me aside every night. He had no idea. And then he talked about how he he broke out in hives after almost every game. He talked about um, his stomach and how much it hurt. And later on in his medical career, his bills went astronomically off the chart, okay. And... Now I started to say, what's that smile then all about? What was the pain behind that smile that he never would really express? Okay. People still find him very enigmatic you know, in that regard. The great books written today about him, Chief Bender's Burden. I've written a list of other adult books so that you can, because this book is aimed more at a population that wants a quick interaction to him and wants to read to their grandchildren and wants to read to themselves and then move to the next level, okay? With beautiful um, illustrations, I must add. Thank you. Um, not done by me. Uh, not even close. Okay. 
So there was so there's there's a man, and then I started doing more research. What caused that smile? Was it a way of saying to the group, "What are you going to do? You're going to bring your troops here and take over my land?" Maybe. Was it you're going to threaten me? You're going to try to take kids? You know, you're going to do more of these whoops and and, and loud noises and think that's going to affect me and my people who've been through so much. Almost a way of his own mind game played back against them. So there's where Bender breaks in, went to Carlisle, okay, and at the age of mm, age of 19, he's pitching in the major leagues, he's won 19 games, excuse me, won 17 games, he's pitched 29 complete games, okay, one of the greatest 19-year-old seasons that I can imagine, and his mentor, who he said was my father figure, gave him a couple hundred bucks and sent him back for a while, you know, to where he was born in Minnesota, in the White Earth Reservation, and then he was ready again to continue. Uh, life at Carlisle, okay, difficult to understand, because he did, he did everything asked. And in fact, if you looked at his reservation, most of them, he was one of the few who graduated, if you looked at his oration, because they all had to do an oration speech, he would say things like, you don't have to be afraid anymore of looking at the Native American in fear. Okay. He's been tamed. Now, this is, this is a Native American who is saying this. Okay. So, in some ways, Richard Henry Pratt would have looked at him and said, a good, you know, one of my good students. Okay. Now, we are smarter to know that a good student knows when to open his mouth and when not. A good student has all kinds of other things going on inside the heart and the head and when best to say them and when not to say them, okay? But there was no doubt he was indoctrinated by this ongoing uh, Carlisle presence. Carlisle was so concerned about it that he, Richard Henry Pratt, referred to himself as their father. Okay? And another woman in charge of the female program, they were separated, right, referred to herself as their mother. In their newspaper, the Indian helper. There's a reference to the father speaking. And probably the most ominous and frightening thing was that there was a character known as the man in the stand. Now, remember, we're talking about a, uh, an old, uh, arranged military uh, display. So there's the stand for review. There in the background are the dormitories. There's the jailhouse, all that kind of stuff. He would pose himself in certain parts of the campus and stand as if like this ubiquitous all-knowing figure was there. So when they looked up or when they read, okay, there was no way to escape that presence. Then came baseball. Now baseball wasn't originally on the program. You know, if you look in the early days, there was this fear about athletics in some ways. But now baseball was taking over the country. Okay. Uncle Sam wanted it. It was in the it was in the um, in the jails. Part of Reformation. Okay. I remember reading an article where um, Hawthorne's son was in there from this is Nathaniel Hawthorne in Atlanta. He's he's writing about how much he loved baseball and how much he's looking forward to being in the Atlanta penitentiary team. Okay. <laughs> Eight league team. Okay. And Sing Sang, of course, had their own team. 
And all of them did. And the idea was that someday they would be rehabilitated. Of course, one guy said, which is interesting, he said, look, as far as I'm concerned, I'm a big shot here. I'm on the team. Out there, I'm a nobody. So they developed their own internal sense of who they were, their own identities, their own communities. That happened in baseball, too. Whenever they wanted to drop baseball, it'd be the, or football with Pop Warner. Now, Pop Warner was the coach of the baseball and the football team. And those who know things about Pop Warner, uh, there were some questions about his behaviors with that football team, especially before it was dismissed and he was let go. Uh, but the key with this was they had developed their own cultural resistance. So when somebody said, drop that team, they knew that a game that they had now owned where they had found a way to develop their own mentalities and communities was going to be dragged away. And yet, the big shots were saying, baseball you make, will make you one of us. No. Baseball made you one of your own. So one guy who ended up, his name is Fleer, he, he said, I came out of that school more in Indian than when I started. And I'm better for it. Okay? And he had a few questions where he had thrown... Uh, baseballs through windows at different locations at, at Carlisle. Okay? So in that reformed tradition, they were able to reclaim who they were and have their own identities. Uh, a man who studied slave narratives has indicated, it was in the Chief Bender book, there's a book that's here, um, he said that one thing they found in slave narratives was that the slaves... They've been told all of your customs are to be forgotten. You are now ours. Okay? Wipe it all out. But he said there's a natural instinct in human beings. He called it a rebel in process. Where when you take a human being and you try to wipe all that out, that he must to some degree know is who he is. Okay? He is going to, through creative strategies and other formats, okay, be a rebel. And it may take a little time, but then he will infer, he will emerge with a new identity, with new senses of community that he hadn't had before. Okay, and baseball provided him, and football. Okay, there are even examples of, of uh, boxers. You know, there are other sports. You know, that, that were there besides just baseball, um, and they were able to use it in kind of a surreptitious way to give themselves their own identity and their own sense of friendship. Who, who, ah. did the, uh, who did the Carlisle, uh, the school, who did they play? What other types of schools? Yeah, they played a lot of good... In fact, Carlisle's, in, in terms of Carlisle's baseball, you would say that when, you know, once you reached 18, you were able to play against uh, collegiate teams. Okay? And he did that. Now, the problem came, and James Thorpe is, is a good example, good example of this, Jim Thorpe, why he had to eventually give away his, his uh, medals, you know, for the... Olympics is he had played with three other Kyle, Carlisle young men in a semi-pro team in Carolina, and he got paid. So as a result, that lost. So Carlisle's team would play the best town teams. They would play the best traveling teams, if that was possible, and the best collegiate teams. Okay. If you went into Carlisle, you'd see kids as young as five and kids as old as 18. You know, there's a massive... And probably, you know, a thousand kids a class. Something like that. No, less than that. Okay. So that was the background. Did they love it? Yes. They loved baseball so much 
they had intramural teams, they had teams themselves that um, each class had a team, and then they had the teams that go out and would play off-site. Uh, just like an American little kid, there was a, I remember reading with us in the first page, the kids said, I wish there wasn't so much study and so many books. Why can't it all be about baseball? How many of us haven't felt that? You know? <laughs> so they were really into it, there was no doubt, and they didn't want it to be taken away. They had, a, in this book once, uh, there's a picture here of, uh, if you think about um, Louis Sakalexis, who in 1897 underwent an horrific experience in which he actually said, I was so tormented I forgot to even smile. So think about the smile before he was, we were talking about the smile of Bender. Um, but in this one, there's a, there's a picture that the good artist, not Greg, okay, <laughs> did. And um, it comes from a group, okay, here it is. I have found my son playing ball with the rainbow-belted Rabanaki, the beautiful colors that spread over the sable field to light my eyes. In the middle of the night, in the banquet room of the sparkling sky, he stands. So this is a Rabanaki story about how Chief Morningstar went, went to go find his son, and his son was playing baseball. Okay. To be more effective was playing totally kind of a pre-lacrosse. But in follow discussions, the people of the Wabanaki tribe, of which Louis Sakalakis was one, spoke of their great devotion and community pride in playing baseball and knew this tradition was behind it. So it became, to me, just this inspirational thing that, you know, take that ESPN, that baseball is dying. You know, that there are no heroes or people to look at, you know, in other sports. And uh, so, back to you, I think, right? In terms yeah. of the questions, yeah. Well, I think maybe I'm going to turn it over to whoever ever wants to ask a question from out here. Any, uh, anyone want to leave, Manish? I, I have kind of a non-baseball question, but it's about kind of Native American. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, growing up, basically in the Midwest, every week I was always asked what kind of Indian I was, a dog or mm-hmm. a feather. Uh, which was always a fun question to answer when you're in first grade. Um, and I noticed you, you, you refer to them as Native Americans, but then when you refer to how they were referred to back then, most was Indian, 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 yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Indian problem. Yeah, and all that stuff, which I, you know, like I grew up and we learned how to sit Indian style and all that stuff, so that's not something yeah. that, even today, most people refer to them as Indians, which right. I don't know. I mean, that all came because Dummy Columbus already found India. And just was like, all right, we'll check out Indians. Why not? So it's not something that we still call them Indians hundreds of years later. Yeah. So I mean, in your research, have you talked to other Native Americans about kind of that identity issue as far as that? I mean, it seems like some of them almost embraced it. Was like, all right, let's screw it. If you're going to call us Indians, then so I've, I've seen other Native you know, Americans call refer to themselves Indians before too. And is that just something that? Is they just been beaten down and be like, all right, whatever, it, it is what it is? Or yeah. is there any sort of pride in that? I don't know. Just I think it, well, it, we can give you a few answers to that. Because as, as you know better than anybody else that, you know, you don't put one group into one big yeah, jar. Exactly. There are different people inside. It's all the tribes. Yeah, exactly. Now, if you went to um, John Tatoris, let's call him Myers, okay? very politically activated. In, uh, Native American. 
he said, I am delighted. And watch his political language. He said, I am delighted that my race okay, was able to master, okay, master relationship, race, the white man's principal game. Okay? You knew what he was saying and you knew you didn't call him chief. He didn't want any part of that at all. Okay. Um, Moses Yellowhawks, who was a Pawnee Indian, who had, again, many good years, his, uh, he's in the Hall of Fame, his glove. Good enough. Okay. That's good enough. Okay. Um, he once, according to which report you want to read, okay, he once tagged Ty Cobb either between the eyes or right in the back when Ty referred to him as an Indian. Straight, and they carried him away. Okay. Now, Ty wasn't exactly loved by a lot of his own teammates. They they weren't say, "Here, let me let me carry the body." That's okay. Get him out of here. Okay. Um, for Bender himself, okay, the most complex, no crusader, you know, he would not be. Ironically, in his family, there were people who were crusaders. Some that went back and taught in Native American schools. Okay, his sister was a nurse who married a man who was the first Native American to graduate from Yale University. Okay. So even, that's why it gets so complex. You know, even within the family, there are different understandings of what it is I'm being called to do. And none of us would ever want to be known. He said, I do not want to be known as an Indian pitcher. I'm a pitcher. That's all he wanted. And I think we all would say in our own pride, I don't want to be known as an Italian this or as an Afro-American, this. I want my credit to come from this. Okay. Maya would have gone a little further. Maya would have said, you know, I'm the one who didn't pay the poll tax because I wasn't even a citizen and you were trying to ask me to pay poll tax. I'm not doing it. Okay. He got a little more aggressive. Um, Moses Yellowhorse, one of the great stories about him uh, is that at the end, he was very nice to a young man when he, when he was at the end of his career, he was in the Arizona League, you know. And he started to become a, a hero to the Pawnee people. In the beginning, they, they saw him as a drinker who was just kind of losing his talents, you know. Uh, people of Pittsburgh loved him. He, paid, he played two straight years. They would yell out, bring in Moses Yellowhorse. And there's a story about um, in the colleges when a, when a professor would get really boring, they would say, bring in Yellow Moses Horse. <laughs> we need more than this. So he was, he was a great, great athlete. Um, became more and more aware of his pointy tradition, started to join the tribes and the, and the interior situations that helped them to get more power. Um, there's a player from the native, from the, who helped to bring about the Curtis Act, who played for the Philadelphia team. His name escapes me now. They, some became politically active, wanting to break away from the Indian norm of, you know, not intelligent, um, the Indian norm was so bad that in, in, in Philadelphia, which came to love, you want to talk about what good Bender did? They came to love him. They had Chief Bender Day, where 50,000 people you know, signed a scroll in admiration to him. They saw him as another Horatio Alger figure, you know, who came from the bottom, worked his way up, played hard, wanted no favors from anybody, had keen, good eyes, had strength, and he could have been Fred Fiona from one of these pro- from one of these movies, 
we had youth being told, play the American ball, be like Jack Steadfast, you know, in the case may be. They loved him incredibly. At the same time, you know, he, he suffered immensely for carrying what load he did and for keeping his quiet as long as he did. Um, did that kind of come in on your Absolutely. In the answer? Yeah, thank you. Okay, good. Yeah. At the time they're playing, um, mm-hmm. it's not just directed against Native Americans. Mm-hmm. It's all ball players, exactly, by other ball players. That's just the way it is. I mean, you push them up to his area, and he goes. So basically, they're trying to break these people down so they'll leave the league so someone else can have their job. And it's not. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned the Irish, because, uh, you know, in the beginning, in the early, like, 1900s, you know, there's a good number of Irish people coming in to play. You know, the songs reflected at the same time. Uh, there's a great unrelated story where one of the umpires uh, who's Irish spits in Eddie Collins' face and they ask him, why did you do that? And he said, I hate college kids. So not only, did, not only then did it have to do with a cultural or even a racial thing, but sometimes just some sense of superiority that you're moving out of your roots from the urchins of the street to this effete group that wants to do things and, and change our game, you know. Um, the, the great historian Seymour talks about the House of Baseball, and he talks about on the bottom of the House of Baseball are the Native Americans. Okay? Then he says in the outhouse are the Afro-Americans. But he doesn't realize there was racial discrimination against the Native Americans as well as cultural. Uh, my friend... Well, okay, yeah, my, my friend from the Giants again, okay, manager that he was, non-parel, win a game and don't care how you win it, okay. He, he tried to bring in a Native American player. Now, some historians think what happened was that when there was a little gentleman's agreement to make the, the Afro-Americans not stay in the league, get rid of them, that they opened up a little more to the Native Americans, you know, we'll take you, but not you, okay. You might as well let some of them, but not too many, okay. When it was all said and done, 26 by 1930, you know, had made the major leagues with Native American backgrounds. But the, the, the strange thing is he brought in a, um, a Native American who he called Homatoma, okay? And, of course, Charles Comiskey, who was one of Comiskey Park, one of the real smart guys in the land, said, mm, Homatoma, my, mm-hmm. And he found out his name was, you know, named after Pocahoma, okay? And said... You bring him in, excuse the... That's okay. Okay. <laughs> you bring him in, I'm bringing in some Chinamen for my team. You know. So that's... There was this sick, strange humor, but it was all based upon, you're not pulling anything over me, okay? And we're not changing the rules as they are. The actual, the actual player was a man named Clark, who was a very good Afro-American player, who was called Homatoma, when it was all over. The first player to hear the N-word was the Native American because they were dark and they heard it. You know. Your point's exactly right. Whenever you have a transition, whenever one is fighting for the other position, you're going to have that same sense of God knows how many times Mickey, Mickey, Mickey this. I, I, I wrote a book on Napoleon Lajewa. It's another children's book and I was going to give you a quiz. I was going to say to you, who has the highest average in American League history? And I was hoping, somebody give me the wrong answer so I could kind of say, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> somebody give me the wrong answer. You can say I knew it was the wrong answer and say it. Uh, my wife, good. Ted Williams. Ty Cobb. Oh, that's a good guess, too. Okay. No, Napoleon Lajewa. 
Who had a baseball team named after him? You could. The only other one. The only other one you could say would be maybe. Uh, what was his name? Wilbert uh, Robinson of the old uh, the, the, the Robins. But I kind of thought he would look pretty strange, having you know, he had a big enough belly as it is. So to kind of make him the, the symbol, Napoleon, because he was six foot one, 185 pounds of muscle. Okay, he made a great Napoleon. His name was Nap. Fine, we'll give him that. The French loved him. He was born in socket. It was a great setup, and we're bringing him back. This this book is part of our un, unearth the treasure. Bring him back. Uh, everything from trophies to uh, to little leagues to to adults saying what happened to our treasure. How come the kids don't even know him? I taught about him in one of the schools. They didn't know who Napoleon was, <laughs> let alone Napoleon Lajoie. So I said, we're in, we got to do some. Grade. They, they were, were fourth grade, <laughs> and they were cute. They were very cute. You know that I hate to get them to be sexist, but the guys were like this. And one said, "He came from here, Unsaket." Now Unsaket is an industrial town that has about the lowest image of itself ever. You know, it's way down there. So we're saying, oh, come on, look back over the country and the history of where the great ones came. You know, take over that list of all the Hall of Fame, 1939. Find out what towns they came from and do the whole thing together. And then call ESPN and say, yeah, okay. It's not about giving everybody a T-shirt. You know, it's about letting them see that there are Horatio Alger figures everywhere. These kids, again, had very little. But when they were done... You know, they were waving to me as if I was Napoleon. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying I'm beautifully handsome, I'm six foot one, 185 pounds, but I'm Italian. No, I, there's got to be a lot of stupid humor when you have half of this. Okay, <laughs> but anyway, it, it was a great thing. And it just, it just brings back to me that how, how much of these stories lie unearthed. Here's a man who was so good that he was told, Ty Cobb said, the greatest player in the game would have been he if it were not for the dead ball. Which brings us back to prejudice. Okay, Ty Cobb, uh, one of the famous episodes in this is where they're... Uh, you, you know what the ball looked like when it was all done. The dead ball. Anybody have a basic idea what they did to it? Everything. One? What's one of the everythings? Tobacco. Oh, yeah. They spit all over that thing. Ah. God, there's a chapter in my adult book. Is what I try to do is write a children's book and an adult book, because the idea is to embed the living world for the children, at the same time satisfy the adults who want the rest of the story, and hope a dialogue will occur back and forth that's developmentally sensible to whatever makes sense for the kid and for the adult. Um, there's a chapter in this in the book I have where Napoleon and two story the Cleveland Indians all together. And they all have their gloves, and they're all sewing. And they call it the Cleveland Sewing Circle. And the idea is to put emery boards into the, into the gloves. <laughs> so whenever the ball was thrown around, and then, and then somebody would be stupid and would leave his glove on the field. You did that, and that emery board was gone the next inning. I wonder why. Bam. Okay. Did you want to spit on the ball? Boy, you spat on the ball whatever you want. You put any concoction you want. The Native, Indi- Native Indians put concoctions. They found, I, I hate the sound again, I don't know what they were, but they had something from home that gave that ball special power, you know, and made it move in different ways. 
but not all Native Americans are Native Americans. Charles Bender says, I won't do that. because I, Not because he's a Native American, but because I want the ball to travel where I put it. I don't want to be held accountable for where it went, and I had no idea where it was going. I want to be a pitcher. I don't want to be a Native American pitcher who does this stuff, you know, to the ball. So, now, there Terry, he is. He, uh, he's credited with, in, they didn't call it the slider at the time, but mm. he's the one who was credited with inventing the slider. Right. I think he, it was called a nickel, nickel curve. curve. Right. Okay. Bobby Shantz, who was one of his great friends and admir- ad, um, what's the word for it? admiration? That doesn't sound like a word. One who admired Somebody give me the word. One who admired him. That sounds good. You can delete that. From <laughs> right? You can no editing. No editing. Oh, dude. He used... English teacher made a mistake. Oh, my gosh. How could he do it? I'm having too much fun. Um, and the point was... We were talking about... The nickel curve. The nickel curve, right. And Bobby Shantz. Bobby Shantz was very much sure that he would be there in 1953 to, to thank Bender for Bender Knight. Um, the Yankees were there with like six different Hall of Famers were there. That was the game for that night. But he said, I consider him to be my mentor. He taught me more about how to pitch, where to pitch, how to throw it than anybody else. When Mac wanted to have somebody on the field to help him, he always had Bender. Okay? Bender could steal signals. Bender could know where to place people. Mac had a history of not telling his, his uh, charges what to do. He would give him the speech you know, whatever happened to be. He would go into the dugout, very quiet, although people talk about his hat, you know, how he would move people with his hat from one place to another. That was it, you know. He didn't parade up and down the field on the sides. He just did this and was over. So he would allow his, his uh, pitchers to do what they want. Now, Bender, smart as can be, okay? he placed everybody where they would belong. Now, when Myers comes up in the 1913 World Series, okay, now, he's already said to the the people who misbehaved, and not only then, but always, he said, uh, foreigners, I think you should calm down or be sent back to Europe. Okay? Got his digging, you know, to the fans. But then, when it came time now for him to work this game, he would move people. So he called all his infielders together, and he moved some to the outfield and some to this. Now, everybody else said, okay, Myers is up. Here we go. And based upon where the players were, it was to be a curveball on the outside. Okay. Now, he had a curveball. He, he watched Christy Matthewson uh, pitch for maybe two weeks and then learned to do his own fadeaway. Okay. He would go to the ref- he'd go to the ump and say, they're hitting my pitch. What's going on? Are they moving? Is, are they, is it moving well? And the ump would say, it certainly is. So Bender would say to himself, plan B. Okay. I think I will slow down my pace. I think I will, I will throw change-ups. I will etc. Game took longer, but he ended up with his shutdown anyway. Okay. Smart man. With Myers, what he did is, Myers said, fine, I'm bringing it to right field. It was a fastball. Straight down, out. So when they asked him, they said, what do you feel about when you're grown doing that to you? He said, he's one of the kindest men I ever knew. To which which, uh, Max said, one of the greatest men I ever knew. To which his uh, teammates said. Now, the only thing which I noticed is you did not see any large actions taken by the players themselves on the field 
to defend or to defuse things that were said. Okay, the man who uh, ran the Nebraska Indians. Now, Nebraska Indians were this kind of brainstorming group. They 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 came from Nebraska. They stole players from a lot of the uh, Native American boarding schools and then washed up people and such. They played up to Wild West traditions. I mean, you know, watch Native American catch the ball with his, you know, with his, uh, with his moccasins. Or, you know, we're, we're going to put this here, he'll get it. But he said, now he's a guy from law school coming out of Nebraska, and he says, but I don't understand why they give him so much trouble. Why they called him so many horrible names. Now, they went on for 20 years. You didn't get it. You played up to every stereotype you could, and then you wonder why they would get that kind of language. When they came into town, okay, they had to put special people on board because they were afraid there'd be riots. If anything was missing, okay, oh, that Native American team stole it. Okay, my uncle Jeb had a hat, okay, or he had a special ring given to him by Aunt Mel. It's gone. What happened? You want to talk about profiling? They were stopped as they came into town. Okay? So here's this guy who made money off them and says he has compensatory you know, feelings for them, can't understand why they're treated this way. It's, it's beyond belief. But again, there were very few that stood up on the field, players or fans, and said, enough, you've gone too far. Okay? That's it. And yet they were not considered... Um, well, some consider them inferior. There's a man who did a study. What's the big word? Uh, where they look at all your brain, and they, they, they study your cranial structure. Yeah, for, not for knowledge, right? Okay. And they looked at that brain, okay, and said, oh, subject to violence. Okay. Subject to uh, willfulness. Okay. Able to quickly um, become emotional and out of control. And those thoughts. So when you see how he transformed, that was Philadelphia, how he transformed those kind of primitive thoughts to ones where somebody can say, you better look Charles Bender in the eye because he's a man of keen intellect, solid um, um, responses, strong and bright, and didn't say he's an Indian quote, warrior, Native American warrior with those traits, but said he's a man who has those traits. What a great transition that really is. And so silent crusader that he was compared to the others, you know, and price he paid, he, he got a great deal done. We can, t- we can take your question. To, right before we do, though, I have to say farewell to the podcast audience due to the podcast time. So for you listening, it is uh, Freedom Between the Lines by Gregory Rubano. Thank you. Okay. Now we